If you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we are in the middle of a series or toward the end of a series in the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you back on the round table. As you're turning there, I want to ask a question that was asked to me just this last week. Why Christianity? I mean, why Christianity and not Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam? Why Christianity when all religions are basically trying to say and do the same thing, and that is to make us better people? Why Christianity? Does it even matter which you choose? I was asked that recently, and on the surface level, I can understand the question. It's a good question. And I can understand even the premise that all religions are basically the same at a surface level. But if you probe deeper, I think that you'll find that all religions are not the same. Stephen Prothrow is a professor of religions at Boston University, and he wrote a book about 10 years ago called God is Not One. The premise of the book is that the popular thesis that all religions are the same is actually not only not true, it's, um, it's really harmful. And Prothero says that it's harmful because it does not treat the various religions with integrity. On the one hand, it, it actually does not listen to what they say about themselves. It's a failure to listen to the various religions, which are making radically different claims about the world and about God. If there is a God or there isn't a God. It also fails to account for this. Yes, all religions are trying to deal with the human problem. But, here's a big but. Every religion assesses that problem in unique ways. And therefore provides a very different solution to the problem. A radically different solution to the problem, I think, in the, fa in the case with Christianity. See, I think that Christianity is radically unique. Radically unique in the problem it poses, what's wrong with the world, and radically unique in the solution that it gives. And if you want to understand something about the uniqueness of Christianity, I don't think there is any better text to go to than this passage that was read earlier about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So as we look at this text, let me pray for us. Lord, you, you claim that your word is truth. And that the truth sets us free. And so we ask right now that we would hear your truth and be set free. And that we would be free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story of the Garden of Gethsemane sets forth, uh, uh, this passage sets forth a unique story about a unique man who is facing a unique death. And what I want to do this morning is simply break that down for us. 
that, that this passage actually presents us with a unique story. We're in the Gospel of Mark. I know it's called Mark because people think that it was written by a guy named John Mark. And the best evidence we have, that is the case. Although the Gospels are not actually, they don't name their author. Uh, but virtually all scholars agree that the Apostle Peter stands behind the Gospel of Mark. That means that Peter commissioned Mark to write the book. And this is Peter's account of Jesus' life. Here we have Peter's account of Jesus' life, and we have Peter in verse 29 coming up and making this bold promise. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Even though they all fall away, I will not, Peter says. Now, here's the question. How do you expect this story to end? See, you laugh because you know how it ends. But if you don't know how it ends, how do you expect it to end? No, really, like if you were making a story where a guy came up and he was one of the heroes and the foundational characters of a religion, and he said, even though they all fall away, I will never fall away, here's what I would expect. I would expect that after the guards come and arrest Jesus in verse 50, we would read something like, but Peter remained true. But Peter stood by his side. That's what we would expect it to be forecasting. But that's not what we read. Instead, we read verse 50, and they all left him and fled. So here's the question. If you're Peter, and this is your gospel, your account of Jesus' life, why include this? Like, really, why include this? Why would you put accounts of your failures here? Now, I've told, I've told some tall tales in my life. It's confession time. None of them had to do with me failing worse than I actually did. The fish was always bigger. The, the catch was always more athletic. The speech was always more eloquent. So why, pray tell, does Peter talk about his royal failure? You say, well, he's just being modest. Yeah, but you can be modest without being someone who abandons and betrays your best friend in his hour of crisis. Why did he do it? I think the first reason that he did it is because it happened. Like it really happened. Otherwise, there's no reason to make this up. Which means that this is actually true. And that's something that you have to deal with. All of us have to deal with that these accounts are historical accounts about events that actually took place. And there is no reason to make this story up. The only reason that we have this recorded is because it actually happened. Or I should say the only reason it is recorded is if it actually happened. Because I don't think that's the only reason it's recorded. Because, you know, this is a selective account and... Peter includes a lot of things, and he excludes a lot of things. So why include this? He could have excluded it. 
Well, I think he includes it to teach us something about ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a promise that you cannot keep? Not a promise that you didn't intend to keep, but a promise that you really can't keep, that you couldn't keep. Like, I'll be there at this place at this time, and then you get sick or hurt. Or maybe one of those promises that goes, starts off like this, I would never, never say never. I will always. And then what happens? In verse 29, Peter makes a promise that he cannot keep. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Now, it doesn't seem so bad. It seems like the kind of thing that, that we say in church, I said in church growing up almost every week, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. I wonder where that was inspired from. <laughs> Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Even if they all fall away, Jesus, I will not. You sure about that? You sure about those words you're saying? Peter was sure. Peter was very sure. In fact, he debates with Jesus about it. And Jesus says in verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then Peter says, No way, Jesus. In verse 29. But Jesus says, Yes way, Peter. This is like, this is like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And the you who that's lost on. I'm sorry. <laughs> Verse 30, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, no, 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 no way. Emphatically, verse 30, 31, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He is confident. And it's not just Peter. It's all of them. Verse 31, they all said the same. But what's the problem? What's the problem with being so confident? What's the problem with this assurance? I mean, assurance is good, right? We're supposed to have assurance as Christians. The problem is not their desire to stick with Jesus. And the problem is not our desire to stick with Jesus. That's not the problem. The problem is their overestimation of their abilities to do so. You see, Peter, the disciples, they are positive thinkers. And they believe in the power of positive thinking. I'll do it. I'll stay with you. I'll stick with you. I mean, they have faith. But their faith is in their own faith. Which is why they're so insecure. Remember last week when they were sitting around the table and Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and then they all go around one after another. I think it's verse 19 and say, is it I, Lord? And they're vacillating from this radical insecurity to this radical confidence. 
like some of us do. You know what that's like? I feel like I am in a great relationship with God. I'm not sure about my relationship with God. I feel like I am a righteous, strong Christian. I feel like I am a failure. You ever felt like that? And maybe it's because our faith is in our own faith. And then when that faith starts giving up or giving out, where are we then? Their faith is in their own faith. Their faith is certainly not in the Scriptures, which Jesus has just quoted, verse 27. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And why are the sheep scattered? Because the shepherd is struck. Which means that it's not only that they don't have faith in the Scriptures, they don't have faith in Jesus. Because they think that they can make it without a shepherd. This is utterly unique. This is an utterly unique message because this message is not, and the point of the story and the point of recording this is not about becoming the best you. The point is not about us harnessing our inner potential. The point is for us to realize how weak and how dependent we are. That we actually need a shepherd. That if the shepherd struck, we're, we're out to lunch. That we need a shepherd, that we need a hero, that we need a savior to lead us where we cannot go, to cross chasms that we cannot cross, and to face enemies that we are powerless before. That's a unique message. Find that in another religion. See, this is a unique story. And it's a unique story about a unique man. Who is this man Jesus, by the way? Well, Christians say, if you're wondering who Jesus is, Christians say that Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man. And he was fully human. And we can see that in verses 33 and 34. Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane, and then it uses three words to describe him, or three phrases translated in English. At first, it says that Jesus was greatly distressed, like shocked with distress, like, like shaking. And then it says that he is troubled. And then it says that he is very sorrowful. Now that's odd. If you're making up a religion, why present your hero as greatly distressed and troubled and very sorrowful? If you're trying to build confidence in people, I would, I would present my hero as always bold and always courageous and always victorious and never doubting and never fearful. So why include this? Because it happened. Because they're telling the truth. Let me suggest that some of you are starting with the wrong question. 
Some of you are investigating Christianity and you're starting with the question, does it work? Does Christianity work? We dealt with that question a couple weeks ago. But I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong question. The question that you need to start with is, is Christianity true? Because if it's true, then it will be of ultimate value for you. And it will work. But if it's not true, then even if it feels like it works, it actually won't be of any ultimate value for you. It'll only be of limited, like placebo-like value for you. And so the question that you need to start with is not, does it work, but is it true? And this account, I would suggest to you, is absolutely true. And that means that we have to deal with it. We all have to stand before it and deal with it. I think that's the first reason why this is written here. But I think there's another reason why it's written here. It says that Jesus is very sorrowful in verse 34. He is feeling an intense sorrow, and it says that that sorrow is so intense that it's unto death, that he wishes he could die. Do you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like depression. You know, depression has a stigma often in the Christian community. You know, if you're not a happy Christian, you're a failing Christian. If you, if you aren't always living the positive, victorious life, then something is wrong with you and your faith. So what do we do with a depressed Jesus who is perfect in faith? I mean, we say that to be depressed is to be in the wrong, but maybe it's not to be in the wrong. Jesus was not in the wrong. Maybe to be depressed is a, to feel a wrong. And so maybe the rightness or the wrongness of the depression depends on why you're depressed. Some of you are depressed because in this fallen world, your bodies are broken. And you have chemical imbalances and you have thyroids that are off. And I just want you to know that that's not sin. It's a result of sin in the broken and fallen world, but it's not sin. And Jesus can relate. Some of you are depressed because, because we live in a world where, where women are taken advantage of and used as objects. Where little boys and girls are sold into slavery. We live in a world where people are profiled based on the color of their skin. You know, we should be sad about those things. Deeply grieved. And maybe something's wrong with us if we're not depressed sometimes. About the brokenness of the world. And I want you to know that if you are depressed, Jesus can relate. He can relate to our sorrow. Jesus is a man. He can also relate to our struggle. In this passage, Jesus is struggling. Did you know that? notice that? In verse 35, he comes before God in prayer and he says that he prays that if it were possible that this hour might pass from him. 
And then verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Christians believe that Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man. And that means that he not only shares in our sorrows, but that means that he is fully human, and he has a fully human will. And that fully human will, just like you and I, he had to actually submit to the divine will. See, Jesus had a fully human will as well as a fully divine will. He shared in the divine will, and he also had a fully human will. And that will he had to actually submit to in obedience to his Father, like you and I. And here he is struggling like we struggle to submit our wills to God's will. See, this is the human struggle. Will you submit to God's will even when it conflicts with your own desires, even when you don't understand? Will you submit to God's will even when it conflicts with your own desires and even when you don't understand? That is the human struggle. God, I know that you desire that it's your will that I be reconciled and seek reconciliation with this person. But I desire, and what I want to do is ignore them and run away. God, I know that you desire for me to be faithful to my marriage covenant and to delight in the wife of my youth. But I desire to find a more fulfilling partner. God, I know that you desire... For me to remain single because I had an unlawful divorce. But I desire to be in another marriage. God, I know that you desire for me to remain committed to the local church, but but my father was a pastor, and I know what the church does to people. And I desire to run away. This is the human struggle. And we all face it in a myriad of ways. It's actually the original struggle. In Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, which I didn't see, haven't seen, didn't see at the time, uh, primarily for reasons that I became convinced that it would tempt me to break the second commandment. Some of you didn't consider that. You should consider that. Um, But I didn't see it. But I know that in this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. And Mel Gibson, in his portrayal of this, has Satan appear in, in a personified figure and in the form of a snake. And you're sitting there and you're, you're wondering, wait, wait a second. That isn't in any of the gospel accounts. There's no, there's no explicit mention of Satan in the gospel accounts. Why did Mel Gibson put Satan in the garden tempting Jesus? Well, it was a theological statement and I think an actually very astute one. Because Mel Gibson realized that that this garden scene alludes to another garden scene in the very beginning when our first parents, Adam and Eve, were given everything 
except for one tree. You can eat of any fruit of the garden. I have given you everything for food, except the one tree. But why that tree, Lord? And I desire it. Adam, Eve, will you submit to God's will and his desire over your own will and your own desire even when you don't understand? Even when you want something else? It's the same Temptation. It's the original struggle. It's the struggle that our first parents wrestled with and lost. And it's the struggle that Jesus is wrestling with here. And he is wrestling. Did you notice that? Look verse 39. He does not just pray this prayer once. Verse 39. And again. And again. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Jesus is wrestling, and it is a battle, a real battle. See, Jesus is a man who knows our struggle, who shares in our struggle, but he is a unique man. Because verse 36, he says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. And where Adam failed... And where Israel failed, and where you and I continue to fail, Jesus overcame. And that's why in that scene in the Passion, Jesus gets up from his prayer, and he crushes the head of the snake. Because God made a promise to Adam and Eve that your descendant will crush the head of the serpent. And he did. He faced the test. And he passed. But you ask the question, why did he have to face the test? And I remember my first tooth getting pulled. And my mom saying, let me check that out. And the next thing I knew, it was out. I remember my dad teaching me to ride my bike. And he said, I'm just going to guide you and hold the seat. And the next thing I knew, he wasn't there behind me. I remember getting my first jam finger and an uncle saying, let me see it. And the next thing I knew, it was pulled. I remember my first splinter and my grandfather saying, show me. And the next thing I knew, he had it in the tweezers. You know, sometimes it's just better to pull the Band-Aid, right? And not know about it beforehand and not spend the time. I mean, why does Jesus have to go through this test? I mean, why it doesn't he just, just rush into it? Why doesn't he just feel the cross when the cross happens? Here's why. So that you might know that this wasn't just God's will to save you. It was Jesus' will. See, he submits his most pressing desire in the moment to his ultimate desire, which is to do the Father's will. And his saving you was not an adrenaline rush it was not an instinctive act of heroic bravery, but a very calculated decision to go to the cross on your behalf and on my behalf. 
And he goes there alone. Only he could do it. They all left and fled. And then verse 51, we have this this verse about a young man who was following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized the young man, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What on earth is that doing in there? (laughs) Who is this person? Some say, I know who it is. It's Mark. I think I know who it is. I think it's Kyle Wells. I think it's Adam. I think it's Eve. I think it's Sally and Roger and Bob and Joe and Billy and Rachel and Susan. And it's all of us who were left naked and ashamed and running in the garden after we failed the test. And there's one who didn't. There's one who faced it. And his name is Jesus. And he goes alone. And this is a unique message. Because the point of Christianity and the point of this message is not for you to become strong and sufficient and an independent person. The point is to realize that we are weak so that we can realize that we can and should trust Jesus with everything, including our wills. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's the point. This is a unique story about a unique man who is facing a unique death. You know, Jesus being fully man does not actually totally explain verses 33 and 34 and the distress and the trouble and the sorrow. Because the reality is, is that many people faced death and many people have faced death. Many Christians have faced death and they have done so with much more bravery than Jesus. Martin Luther, the German reformer said, no one feared death like this man. Why did Jesus fear death so much? I mean, that doesn't make any sense with everything we know up in the gospel up until this point. I mean, Jesus faces everything. He faces, he faces mobs that are out of control. He faces religious leaders who can have him killed. He, he even faces the demons. Have you come to destroy us, Jesus? Yes, I have. Not a place where he shows the slightest bit of fear or trouble or shock, no matter what is thrown at him. He faces windstorms and natural disasters. Why here, when he faces death, is he so troubled? Because this is no ordinary death. Look at verses 35 and 36. In these verses, Jesus starts talking about an hour and a cup. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And the hour he is talking about is the hour of his crucifixion. And then he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And what is the cup? 
We talked about this last week, but throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the cup is the cup of God's judgment and His wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make the nations to whom you, I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. What Jesus is about to do is to drink the cup of his wrath. And he's starting to experience, to taste that experience there on the cross. He knew it intellectually. He knew that that's where he was going. But now he is knowing it experientially. And that's why he is shocked. Because God, who is the source of all love and all life, all joy and all peace, who he had perfect communion and fellowship from eternity past with. Because that God he is about to be in some mysteri mysterious way that we cannot comprehend, in some way in the fullness of humanity, he is about of his humanity, he is about to be cut off. And not for anything that he has done, but for you and for me. The cup was not full of his own sins or the consequences of his own sins. It was full of our sins. He bore our iniquity. He carried our sorrow. And so he trembles. And so he wrestles. But for some of us, that wrestling, it's kind of troubling. The vacillation. I don't know, is it troubling to you? It's a little troubling to me because I have to ask, wait, Jesus is vacillating here. Does he not really want me? Did he not really want to save me? Was it that hard of a decision for him? But that only shows that we do not comprehend what he is wrestling with. And we do not comprehend the uniqueness of the death which he was facing. Anne Lamont tells a story of an eight-year-old boy who has a little sister. She's six, and she has leukemia. If she doesn't have a blood transfusion, she is going to die. His parents asked the eight-year-old boy, would you be willing to give a pint of blood to your sister? Now, if you know me, you know that blood is actually a horrifying prospect for me. It's very disturbing and fearful. Uh, and if I see too much of it, um, I get a little queasy and pass out which is why I'm not in the medical profession, nor should I be. And I will pray for you if you were hurt, probably with eyes closed in a corner. <laughs> and that's me, an eight-year-old boy. I mean, that's even more so, right? Maybe. So he tells his parents, I need to take the night to think about it. So he takes the night. And the next morning he tells his parents, yeah, I'll do it. So his parents inform the hospital and they get everything set up and they go in and the little boy and his six-year-old sister are lying there on the gurneys. They hook up the IVs and he starts to see his blood pass from his body into his sister's blood which will save her life. And he just closes his eyes and breathes deep. A little later the doctor walks in and he looks up at the doctor and says, 
how soon until I start to die? And then you realize that what he was wrestling with that night was much more than you realized. And then you realize that him taking the night did not indicate anything about a lack of love for his sister. But it indicated everything about the perceived sacrifice that he was actually giving. Jesus' vacillation, his wrestling is not because his desire for you is so small, but because his sacrifice for you and me was so great. This does not put his love into question. It puts his love into perspective. See, some of us have a hard time believing in a God who would justly judge sin. A God who pours out wrath upon sin. But let me ask you this. If you don't believe that your sin makes you hell deserving, then what did it cost God to save you? And what did it cost God to love you? What form, what sacrifice did his love actually take? See, for those of us who know that our sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, we also know that God willingly subjected himself to that wrath and curse on our behalf because his love for us was so deep and so great and so wide. See, this is a unique death because this is the death of deaths. All the deaths the deserved deaths of all the world are gathered up into that cup and into this one death. Jesus said, no greater love has a person than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, but God does not lay down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for his enemies. When you and I were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the death, this is a unique death, not only because it is the death of death, it is the death to end all deaths. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but, but after I am raised up. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But after I am raised up, you see, this is the death to end all deaths. Jesus will pass through the other side. And he will lead us there in triumph. And this is the unique message of Christianity. This is why Christianity is uniquely good news. Because it's not news about a more competent self, but about a conquering king. And it's not news about a better you, but it's news about a sufficient Savior. And it's not news about your best life now, but about a new life forever. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. 
I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. No turning back. No turning back. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.